Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Economists generally agree that the most efficient way to reduce carbon dioxide emissions that cause global warming is by putting a price on carbon in the form of a carbon tax. Consumers, though, can tend to see things differently. The idea of taxing the fuels that run our cars and power our homes and jobs has given Americans pause, and as a result, no carbon tax has yet been levied to date in the United States. Nevertheless, calls for a carbon tax have become more frequent as concern over climate change has intensified. On Capitol Hill, there are half a dozen carbon fee proposals in circulation with backing from liberals and conservatives. States have also explored carbon pricing, most notably the state of Washington, where two recent carbon tax ballot initiatives were defeated at the polls. On today's podcast, I'll be talking with an economist about the challenge of enacting a carbon tax. We'll look at policymakers' efforts to develop carbon tax legislation to appeal to the broad public and what might be required for these efforts to ultimately succeed. My guest is Ioana Maronescu, Assistant Professor of Public Policy with the School of Social Policy and Practice at the University of Pennsylvania. Ioana, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to be here. I wonder if we could start uh, by having you give us a brief overview of how carbon taxes work and why economists prefer carbon taxes over the other options to, to contain carbon emissions. Right. So indeed, carbon taxes are economists' pet policy to address uh, global warming and reduce emissions. And that's because carbon taxes create the right incentives uh, for emissions reduction. So basically, the argument is that carbon taxes make carbon more expensive. And when prices of something goes up, then we want to buy less of it. So it's like supply and demand. So that basically means that people and companies are going to use less carbon because the price of carbon intensive goods goes up proportionately to uh, their content in carbon. So why is that particularly good now is because it allows for flexibility so that people who really feel like using carbon is very important to them, perhaps because they are a company whose production process cannot be easily and cheaply changed, so they have to use it. Well, they'll say, okay, it's more expensive, but I'm still going to use it. Okay, because I'm willing to pay that price. It doesn't make sense to change. So I'm still going to use it or maybe just reduce my usage a little bit and be willing to pay a higher price. Whereas for some other entities who and perhaps another company who finds it very easy to change, they're like, ha, well, if now carbon is more expensive, now I have a great idea to make my production process you know, uh, much less carbon intensive. Sure, it costs a little bit, but that cost is actually quite small compared to how much I could save in taxes. And that company is now, bingo, I'm going to make that change and save in taxes. And so what you see, if you generalize this with many types of companies and many types of people, is that basically those people for whom abatement, meaning reduction in carbon emissions and carbon consumptions is cheapest, are those who reduce it most. And those for whom it's hardest are those who reduce it the least. And so this flexibility you can show, you know, in a simple mathematical model that it leads to 
reducing carbon consumption at the lowest price. Again, because those agents, those actors, those companies, those people who find it cheap to reduce carbon emissions do it first. And those who find it expensive do less of it. So in this way, the burden is allocated efficiently. So those who you know, can uh, reduce efficiently do so. Those who find it hard don't. So basically you achieve a much uh, more efficient level of reduction than otherwise. And what is the other typical option is basically regulation, where you tell every company some cap on emissions. You know, you just can't emit more than something. And I'm not talking cap and trade here. It's just a hard and fast cap on emissions. Well, that system, in contrast to carbon tax, is not flexible because it's the same cap for everybody. So the person who finds it very hard to reduce their emissions, they're going to be hit potentially extremely hard to their cost by this cap because they're being told, well, no matter what, we don't care how hard it is for you, just have to keep to the cap. Whereas some other company that would find it easy to reduce you know, their emissions, well, they're only going to reduce it to the cap. There's no incentive to reduce the emission below the cap. So that's why uh, regulation, as in a hard and fast cap on emissions, is not efficient compared to an equivalent carbon tax because, again, the equivalent carbon tax would allow those for whom it's cheapest and most convenient to re reduce emissions to reduce emissions the most and let those for whom emission reduction is hard not reduce them as much. And so that's basically uh, the story behind why uh, carbon tax is more efficient than regulation uh, when it comes to reducing carbon emissions. So that flexibility is really valued. It sounds like exactly. Let me ask you this: so a carbon tax could be implemented at the national level uh, as a countrywide tax, or at the state level. Your work is really focused on on state efforts to implement a carbon tax. Why why the state level? Right. So the state level is very interesting politically because uh, at the federal level, it is very hard to pass any kind of legislation uh, because of, say, the filibuster in Senate. So the process is such that at the federal level, most laws never get passed, uh, whereas the probability that a law passes is much higher at the state level. So it's much easier to achieve any kind of legislation at the state level than at the national level. And so that's how states have often become the laboratory of democracy, where new policy innovations are often first implemented at the state level and could be adopted first by other states and then ultimately nationally. One interesting example is uh, the healthcare system in Massachusetts, where uh, so-called Romney care uh, by Mitt Romney uh, was a, a system very similar to Obamacare that was implemented first in Massachusetts and then uh, it was taken as a blueprint uh, for uh, the Affordable Care Act, or also known as Obamacare. So in that case, it's an example where a state-level policy uh, served as an inspiration, a blueprint for a national-level policy. So it could be the same potentially for the carbon tax if a state were able to successfully implement one. Now, now like any tax, a carbon tax is a source of government revenue. Um, what do carbon tax proposals generally suggest governments do with the revenue they take in? So there are a bunch of different uh, options, but broadly the most common ones are either spending green, which can take a bunch of uh, different forms, but returning therefore towards environmental spending, or returning the money to the people, 
which again can uh, people or companies which can also take a bunch of different forms and uh, broadly within that category of giving the money back to the people you could either try to give more money to uh, people who you expect to be adversely impacted by the carbon tax or you could give the same uh, to everybody or you could try give more to those people who perhaps uh, you know need a little bit of extra incentive to be persuaded. So you know this is politics. You know we're thinking like, well, is there some constituency that if only we could, you know, uh, persuade those people, make a difference. You know that would also be something that policymakers would be thinking about in building a coalition, right, uh, to get a carbon tax passed. Now, Washington state is the first state where voters have actually gone to the polls to vote on a carbon tax. And there were two carbon tax ballot initiatives based on the two models that you've described. Both of those failed. What happened? So in 2016, there was a first carbon tax initiative called I-732 in Washington state. And this model was a model of a carbon tax where the revenue would be returned to the people in a bunch of different ways. But the key thing is that before I explain how it would be returned to the people, and that means it's what we call revenue neutral. And what does that mean? That means that the revenue of that carbon tax does not increase the revenue of the government since it's directly given back to the people. So that's what we mean with uh, revenue neutral uh, that allows the money to directly flow back uh, to the people. So now this 2016 initiative that was revenue neutral, the way that it was achieving that is uh, through a decline in the sales tax and an increase in the earned income tax credit uh, in Washington state. So those are the main things that um, were used to uh, get the money back to the people. So that's version one, which again is a revenue neutral carbon tax where the money goes back to the people. And version two in 2018, uh, take, took a different tack and most of the money was spent on green spending. So that's very interesting because we have, and otherwise, by the way, the two were very similar, same rate, very similar definitions otherwise of what the policy was going to be. The key difference was how the revenue was going to be spent. Again, in 2016, it would be revenue neutral, the money would get back, get back to the people, whereas in uh, 2018, it would be a green spending uh, kind of carbon tax. Let me ask you a question just to, to clarify here. Um, there's been a lot of talk about fee and dividend, and then there's the, the revenue neutral model that you've just been talking about. Can you explain the difference in that a little bit, just because I have heard so much about this fee and dividend model as well? That's right. So the fee and dividend is also revenue neutral. Uh, so the fee and dividend model is you get the revenue of the carbon tax and then you give it back to the people, but the same for every person. So the whole revenue is spent on uh, returning to the people, but importantly, in the fee and dividend proposal, every person gets the same amount. And that is distinct from the Washington case 2016 revenue neutral uh, proposal, which was also revenue neutral, the money was going back to the people, but different people would get different amounts. For example, a key vehicle for returning the money back to the people was the sales tax. So people who were paying more sales tax, therefore, uh, would get more money out of this by the reduction in the sales tax. So not everybody gets the same amount, whereas in the carbon fee and dividend, everybody gets the same amount. So that's, that's the difference. They are both revenue neutral, but uh, in the case of the Fee and dividend, everybody gets the same amount. In the case of the Washington state 
2016 version, different people would get different amounts depending on uh, you know how much earned income tax credit they would get from Washington State or how much sales tax uh, they would be paying. Now, as you mentioned, also that that uh, initiative in Washington State in the year 2016, which was the the the, the bill was I-732, uh, did not pass. So it looks like revenue neutrality was not enough to uh, convince people to actually vote for that in that in at that time why is that that's right so uh 40.8 percent of people in washington state voted for it uh and so it didn't pass because it didn't get 50 percent so in the aftermath of this people thought uh maybe this whole revenue neutrality thing is not the thing you know instead we should try a different strategy and by the way, the revenue neutrality is a very centrist, uh, politically centrist view uh, in the sense that it tries to appeal to moderates on both sides. And the hope is that, you know, with getting the moderates, this would uh, help the policy get across the 50% uh, threshold. And that's also the thinking right now at the national level uh, for some of the supporters of the carbon fee and uh, and dividends. So. <clears throat> then that's one theory. It says, like, let's try to get the moderates uh, to support this uh, with a carbon uh, fee and uh, and dividend. So now you might ask, why is this moderate? Well, uh, partly because it's uh, revenue neutral so that it doesn't increase the size of government. So for more conservative people who don't want to see uh, the size of government increase, this revenue neutrality uh, is uh, attractive. And, and so, you know, that's why this is seen as a moderate uh, position on the carbon tax. So, okay, but that failed uh, in 2016. So then people in Washington state who wanted a carbon tax said, well, let's try something else. Instead, let's try to energize progressives. Uh, and progressives really care about environmental spending. So that's how the 2018 version was uh, focused on environmental spending as far as the spending side of the bill. So the carbon tax side was the same essentially, uh, but the difference is how they were gonna spend the revenue. So in 2018, it was gonna be all in on green spending. And the hope was that this would bring in a lot more enthusiastic support from progressives and that this was going to uh, get this I-1631 uh, over the hump of 50%, which didn't work because it only got 43.4%, so it failed again, though with slightly better score than uh, the one from 2016. So what happened? Why did it fail the second time? Well, so as the progressives had anticipated, this 2018 version did actually pull better with progressives. It slightly turned off uh, conservatives, but not so much. But the, the, the really the big thing is that while it increased the enthusiasm of progressives, this increase in enthusiasm was just not big enough, you know, to get the whole thing over the 50 percent, um, you know, bar. So while it went into the direction that the proponents of 2018 version expected, meaning that there was more support from progressive ranks, it just didn't get enough support overall uh, because that extra support from progressive wasn't big enough uh, to make uh, to make a difference. You want to let me ask you this um, in that first vote, did residents in Washington uh, possibly turn down the carbon tax because maybe they didn't believe that they were really going to get all that money back? Uh, uh, you know, in in the, you know, the neutral revenue neutrality that, that this was planned to give them? 
Right. So we think that that's probably an important factor. So in our study, we're able to look at uh, the median voter, so the person who might have tipped that over. And what we find is that this person seems to feel about the carbon tax as in, hey, this carbon tax is going to increase my cost of living. We estimate it's about $266 per year. Um, I don't like it. That's it. And they weren't factoring in any other benefits, including the fact that money was going to come back to them in the form of lower sales taxes or any environmental benefits for the person like smack in the middle of the you know, political spectrum. All they were uh, seeing is this, hey, 200 something more cost of energy for me. I don't like this. That's it. <laughs> I'm done. I'm not uh, voting for this. So as such, it's consistent with people just not seeing beyond the cost and not factoring in the benefit, including the direct financial benefit in this case from a reduction in the sales tax. And so that's very um, an important obstacle also today for people who are thinking about the carbon tax and dividend or carbon uh, fee and dividend, because this dividend, you have to have people believe that it's there and they're going to get it and it's going to make a difference. And uh, what people have shown is that uh, using a French survey where in France, they've also uh, been through this carbon tax issue and people were really revved up against it with the yellow vest movement. So researchers have, you know, have looked more into this and they found that, you know, even if you tell people, hey, look for you, you're going to get more money out of the dividend than, you know, you get for a carbon tax. Do you want to vote for it? Most people are implicitly saying like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I just don't believe it that it's going to make up for the lost money. So it's uh, beliefs are sticky. Is there Once any way to change those? It's very hard to change those beliefs. So in the case of France, this may or may not apply to the U.S., but what they saw is that trying to provide people with objective information about the likely impact on themselves and telling them, hey, you're probably going to come out ahead because what you're getting in a dividend would be more than what you'd be losing for the cost of higher energy. People weren't very impressed by that argument and didn't change their beliefs very much. So if they started out thinking that the carbon tax is bad, you know, they barely changed their mind after they were told that, hey, we think, we scientists think that personally you would gain financially. They just basically, many people just didn't really buy it. So that really illustrates the stickiness of beliefs and that in many cases it can be quite difficult to convince people who are concerned about the cost of the carbon tax and the impact on their purchasing power, it can be quite hard to persuade them otherwise. And I think this is interesting because this study was done by economists, so they weren't a political actor. They just said, you know, we're economists, you know, here's what we think is going to happen. Do you want to support this? And people, again, were not very much moved by the economists showing them that they would gain financially with the dividend. So it can be um, heightened in the context of partisanship. So, you know, if maybe the other party, not your party, proposes this and is trying to persuade you that you're actually going to gain financially, maybe you don't want to believe it. Uh, because on top of that, you might not trust the source. So um, this shows one of the complications of getting a carbon tax passed, including a revenue neutral carbon tax where the money is given back to the people, 
one of the issues is do people actually believe that this money is going to come to them and make them whole? So, you know, like basically compensate for uh, the higher cost of energy. And, you know, simulations show that with the carbon fee and dividend, which again is not what Washington State did, but many are proposing this, where everybody gets the same amount, simulations show that about 70% of the population would gain. So the majority would gain financially, okay? So therefore, this seems like a no-brainer, something that should pass. But I think part of why it hasn't passed yet is because it's somewhat difficult to convince people that that's really what's going to happen, that they're going to uh, benefit financially and that people have sticky beliefs and they also have, uh, we can talk about this, but they have partisan ideological views about how they see a policy that's also above and beyond the direct impact on themselves. They also have views about what policy they like, you know, that isn't just related to pocketbook concerns, like how much is going to cost me but it's related to whether they like this policy in general for other ideological reasons. Well, I, I want to jump into specifically that point that you just raised, right? So in your research, and I'm referring actually specifically to uh, a policy digest that you have published on the Climate Center's website. Love the title of this one. It's Ideology Stupid. The subtitle is Why Voters Still Shun Carbon Taxes. And in that paper, you say quite clearly that, uh, quote, pocketbook issues are dwarfed by ideology and explaining the Washington state vote. Tell us, tell us why ideology is so much more important. We spent so much time talking about economics here, but apparently that's not the, the biggest issue. Right. So both play a role, but really ideology is very important when you're trying to, you're looking at Washington state and you're looking at this voter, they voted no, and this voter, they voted yes, and you're trying to explain why their opinions diverge. And what we show is that their opinions don't diverge mostly because the person who voted yes was not going to, you know, have a large increase in energy cost, and the person that voted no voted no because their cost of energy would increase more, which would be the economic explanation, like, hey, it cost me, so if it costs me more, I'm more likely to vote no. No, that wasn't the main thing that was going on. Instead, the person who voted no was ideologically anti-carbon tax, and the person that voted yes was ideologically pro-carbon tax. And what does ideology mean here? So we are able to measure ideology by looking at how people voted on a bunch of other referenda that occurred at the same time on, on topics quite different from environmental uh, issues, things like gun control. And so it turns out that people who voted for gun control are much more likely to like the carbon tax. And we can uh, compile all their policy preferences, what sort of policy they like, in an index of ideology, right? And so you can this way line up people from liberal all the way to conservative, depending on how they vote on all this myriad of policies. So basically, ideology is another name for your typical policy preferences. With your ideology in hand, I can predict how you feel about the minimum wage, gun control, carbon taxes, you name it. And so what we find is that in Washington state, ideology is a very good predictor of how you're going to vote and that the more liberal you are, the more you're going to be in favor of the carbon tax. And that's true whether it was for the 2016 or the 2018 version. The general tendency is that the more liberal someone is, again, in the sense that they support liberal policies, like they want gun control, they want higher minimum wages, yada, yada. 
and the more the person is also likely to vote yes for the carbon tax. So that's the sense in which we really find that ideology explains most of the variation across different people. If you want to explain why this person voted yes and this person voted no, the main reason is because they have a different ideology. Mm -hmm. Now, you've also found that public support for a carbon tax can fall when brought directly to the public as a ballot initiative. Does the research, in essence, say that referendums can be counterproductive, at least from the perspective of carbon tax advocates? Right. So the referendum was tricky because in 2016, this carbon tax uh, initiative was actually a little bit under the radar. It wasn't that much talked about and the campaign spending was quite limited. But in 2018, when they came back, the campaign spending increased like tenfold and the no campaign spent a lot more, twice as much as the yes campaign. And uh, we show evidence consistent with the idea that all this, uh, you know, campaign spending against and just the general atmosphere of the campaign really lowered people's support uh, for the carbon tax. And so I think the lesson is you have to come prepared that, you know, it's one thing how good your design of the carbon tax is and what the good arguments that you have, but you have to also think about the other side, the people and interests and lobbies who are against it. What are they going to say? How are they going to spend their money to counter your arguments and your side of the issue? And that, you know, you shouldn't underestimate uh, the other side. And that can make a big difference. Because if you look at polls nationally, you see that more than two thirds of people say they want the carbon tax. And then you see Washington state, who's among the more liberal states, and it failed to pass it twice. What gives? What we show is that what gives is the campaign effect. So again, the fact that when you... It's a different when you ask about a policy in the abstract. Oh, do you like carbon tax? Oh, yeah, great. I love the environment. I want to do something. And then when it's a real question, it's put to you. Do you want a carbon tax? And you're also hearing the counter arguments from the no campaign. That could have quite a different outcome and a more negative outcome uh, for the carbon tax. So it's not that bringing it to the referendum is, you know, doomed, but it's more you have to think about your communication strategy. And we showed that it should be easier in more liberal states like places like Massachusetts. Maybe there with a good campaign, they have a chance, even with the adverse campaign of the adversaries, because Massachusetts is quite uh, liberal, has policy preferences that are aligned with liking the carbon tax, you know, they might be able to uh, do it. But again, a key lesson is you cannot take surveys at face value. They're useful, but there is a distinction between what people will say in a survey before they are subject to a whole campaign and what they say at the polling booth or in their mailing ballot after they heard all the pro and against arguments. So, so it sounds like what you're saying here is that people come in with good intentions, or I guess more specifically, they come in with the intent to support a, a, a carbon tax, but then when a, a public campaign begins, people hear the counter arguments, maybe they hadn't really thought about things too clearly, but liked it on the on face value, and then some of their beliefs got shaken rightly or wrongly by hearing all this opposition, and, and that, that right. creates a vulnerability going into the election. So let me ask you this then. So, uh, you know, you kind of mentioned it a moment ago, I want to ask, are, are public referendums a bad idea? Or do we really just want to assume that the legislative approach would be better where legislators 
it, within the closed doors in state houses actually go through this whole process themselves without bringing up to the public to vote? That's, that's a good question, but it's hard to tell because a similar effect can occur among legislators, you know, like legislators generically, again, if they are somewhat progressive, they probably generically like this idea. But then once they start to think about all the different interest groups that they might want to represent and whatnot, it could change things. You know, there we haven't done the research to speak in more detail about, you know, what's happening on that side. But you could have a similar process that, you know, it's one thing that maybe theoretically the legislator kind of likes this. But then, you know, going into the whole uh, process of bill making and voting, uh, things could be different. Although, as I said, we don't have uh, firm evidence uh, on this for the moment. And I think it'd be actually quite an interesting uh, question for further research. Now, carbon taxes bring other concerns along, along with them, right? I mean, including the potential for a state to lose jobs to neighboring states that don't have carbon taxes. Uh, have economists quantified the real impact of a carbon tax potentially on businesses and jobs in a state right. where they have a carbon tax or would want to have one? So, so people have uh, looked a little bit at this issue in Canada, uh, where uh, British Columbia has a carbon tax. And you know, there isn't robust evidence that it uh, hurts job in British Columbia, for example. Uh, they've also looked at the carbon tax in the UK, which applied to certain uh, manufacturing industries more than others. And those industries that were most strongly impacted didn't really lose jobs compared to industries that were, you know, less strongly impacted. So there isn't, you know, uh, convincing empirical evidence for the fact that having this carbon tax uh, leads to a, a job uh, decrease. And, you know, the, the, what you have to remember is that an economy is very complex and there's many factors at play. Uh, so, you know, when it comes to a state like Washington, there's many reasons why a business would want to be in Washington. You know, maybe it's access to the coast. Maybe they want to be close to uh, some of the tech hubs uh, uh, in uh, Seattle, whatnot. There's a lot of reasons. So taxes are only one of the reasons. And states already have um, different sales taxes, et cetera, et cetera. So this is just one factor among many. So that makes it a little bit more sticky. And then the other thing is that if, even if there are some job losses in the area that is covered by the carbon tax, that could be compensated by job creation in uh, less carbon intensive sectors. So, you know, again, empirically, we don't see much effect. And theoretically, once you understand that, you know, there's this many uh, different aspects to the decision and that uh, the less carbon intensive sector could grow, it is also not clear, you know, how much uh, difference is going to make uh, in the end. So I think uh, we are still building the basis of evidence and we'd have to see on a case by case. But let's say that as of now, there is no strong evidence for uh, a significant negative impact on jobs uh, for having from having the carbon tax. Well, as you said, uh, if, if jobs in energy intensive or, or fossil fuel intensive uh, industries uh, fall, then maybe some of those jobs would, would switch over, for example, to clean energy. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, you know, on net, it, it may not really make a difference. Now, I want to ask you, obviously, the, these are very difficult times uh, around the world in the, in the United States due to the COVID crisis. Is this even the right time to be talking about carbon taxes? You know, given the strain that COVID has placed on state budgets and consumers, 
a carbon tax looks like an additional burden at the worst possible time. Is this, is this even the right time to talk about it? Right. So right now, any tax is going to be a very bitter pill to swallow um, because of the state of the economy. And frankly, you know, I just wouldn't necessarily recommend uh, thinking about uh, that right now at this very moment, because we are in the depth of a very severe uh, recession that is possibly the most uh, severe recession that we've known since, since the 1930s, the Great Depression. So, uh, but, you know, the environmental concerns haven't disappeared. So we still ought to think about uh, what we can do about, uh, about the environment. And it might uh, be useful to think about whether we can take certain steps now in terms of environmental spending or possibly even uh, giving people dividends ahead of time. So can we think about saying, like, we'll introduce a carbon tax later, maybe once the unemployment rate has dropped below a certain pressure, like, let's say, 6%, uh, then, you know, we might think about introducing a carbon tax. But for now, we want to already potentially start with some of the benefits. And if that were at all possible, it would potentially fight people's disbelief, you know, uh, in uh, the benefits of the carbon tax by saying, like, hey, like, you know, this is going to happen, so you know it's happening, but you're already getting some of the benefits right now. Uh, as far as, for example, uh, you could already give people some of the dividends that are anticipated uh, from the future carbon tax. Certainly makes the policy design much more complex, but it could be an opportunity to try to convince people uh, about the benefits of the policy. So you're saying that uh, uh, distribute the, the, the benefit now and then in the future, um, uh, tax, uh, put a tax on carbon and then basically use that to pay back or pay forward, whatever the correct terminology exactly. is. Okay. Got it. Got it. Exactly. Okay. That, that would be the idea. Okay. And that would be key. revenue neutral in its own sense, right? In the long run. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. In the long run. Right now it would result in greater deficit, but in the long run, you know, it'd be paid for. So how do you get the message across that a carbon tax could be a tool for economic stimulus? I mean, how do you how do you get industry on board with this as well? Well, I mean, to the degree that right now this would come with a stimulus, you know, the certainly the short run effect uh, is, uh, you know, something that uh, could certainly be uh, be argued. And then in the in the long run, you know, as we discussed earlier today, it's the impact of the carbon tax really differs a lot by industries and some industries will actually gain uh, from the carbon tax because spending will go away from their competitors towards the more you know uh, greener less carbon intensive industries so when we talk about industries opposing this we want to talk about what, which industries because actually some of the industries uh, uh, could be in favor of that and you know if you look also even including some of the uh, big oil companies, some of them are huge conglomerates that also are investing in green energy, uh, partly to cover their risk. But that means that while this could mean that their oil side revenue, their fossil fuel revenues could go down to the degree that they cleverly invested, uh, you know, in carbon free technologies, that other branch of their business will benefit. So it's not uh, that completely straightforward that there would be a, you know, blank opposition from business because, again, some businesses will actually gain uh, uh, from the carbon tax. 
so you know it's certainly a little bit more uh, more complicated than thinking that uh, the whole of industry would be uh, opposing this. And actually, it's interesting because if you look at the Climate Leadership Council, which is um, a think tank that pushes for a carbon fee and dividends, so it's a revenue neutral carbon tax where everybody gets the same amount of cash back. Uh, it is backed by some of the biggest uh, uh, petroleum companies. So clearly, uh, you know, these companies uh, see some opportunity there of getting ahead of the game with a policy that, you know, overall they have uh, some understanding and control over. And again, like knowing that a lot of these companies already started investing in green technologies and are hoping to, you know, compensate that way. And that's the plan that's, that was put forth by uh, Jim Baker and George Schultz, right? Also exactly mm -hmm, backed by Janet Yellen as well. Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you a final question here, uh, if I may. You know, w with all the insights that you've talked about today, how would you apply these to implement the carbon tax in other states? And is Washington State going to give it another shot? So, you know, Washington state might give another shot. You know, I'm, I'm hearing some, you know, people talk about it. You know, obviously, the, even though it failed twice, there is an appetite for it uh, in Washington state. Uh, and there might be other states. Like, as I said, our study, for example, shows that Massachusetts could be a particularly favorable uh, ground, certainly for a referendum. Now, of course, the coronavirus is the odd card uh, because that just makes it much harder as we just discussed, to uh, pass a tax. So let's say that it would require a little more creative thinking, uh, even above and beyond uh, what we've seen in Washington state. But you know, I think the lesson is that you have to pay attention to how the policy speaks to people's ideology, how it relates to their general worldview and policy preferences, and to anticipate how the opposition is going to campaign against you and do your best to prepare, you know, strong arguments uh, against what the opposition is going to say. And so if in particular you're able to have a dividend, and maybe even if you give the dividend just slightly ahead of the tax, maybe you don't need a huge delay, but just a little bit ahead so that the people see the benefit first, you know, that could potentially uh, perhaps uh, change uh, people's minds. So there are a lot of, you know, moving parts to consider, but... Uh, the research shows that certainly there is a chance for a carbon tax to pass in a liberal state like Massachusetts, provided that, uh, you know, the issues around the campaign are cleverly uh, addressed. That would be, again, in ordinary times, I think with the coronavirus crisis, things are much more uncertain and complicated. But on the other hand, the environmental problem isn't going to go away anytime soon. So we should keep being creative in terms of how we address that with policy. Would that strategy of showing the people the money first by, by giving the dividend ahead of the actual uh, collection of the carbon tax, do you think that might also help to overcome the ideological barrier here? I mean, we've talked about economics, but the ideological barrier that you talked about earlier as being so central? Uh, perhaps, who knows? I mean, perhaps it would make people focus a little bit more on you know the what's in it for me side and seeing that they're getting this dividend and sort of being happy about the dividend that they get and perhaps 
you know, slightly lessen some of the more ideological uh, concerns that people have in their minds. So certainly it could help. And my our preliminary analysis, we've run a survey, a national survey, looking at how much a dividend could convince people to support a carbon tax. And we see that uh, moderates, so those who are a bit middle of the road on strong ideologues, they are those who are most likely to be convinced by the dividend. Um, so, you know, it seems like the dividend have, has a chance to change the minds indeed of these moderate voters and therefore potentially, especially in a liberal state that has already a solid ba base of support for the carbon tax because the state is liberal, uh, then, you know, this dividend could potentially move the moderates uh, to support it, especially if we convince them that this dividend is for real. As we said before, in Washington state, it seems like people just, the moderates just didn't believe in the benefits that were coming uh, fiscally with the 2016 initiative, the, you know, decrease in the sales tax in particular. People just didn't really believe it or factor that in. So if the dividend, if we made that very clear and potentially paid people slightly ahead of time, that could potentially really help to uh, bring in those moderate voters uh, who are really concerned about uh, their uh, cost uh, to themselves. Ioana, thank you very much for talking. Thank you. Today's guest has been Ioana Marinescu, Assistant Professor of Public Policy with the School of Social Policy and Practice at the University of Pennsylvania. Check out the Climate Center's website for our latest energy and environmental policy blogs and research. Our web address is climbandenergy.upenn.edu, and our Twitter handle is at climbandenergy. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. Thank you.